I invite you to turn your Bibles to the book of Psalm chapter 1. Psalms chapter 1. And we're going to be reading the text here with you. I invite you to follow along as I read it. It said, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He should be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. We have an opportunity to be introduced to the Psalms with Psalm 1 with a very powerful declaration, really, an invitation uh, of what God intends for man. Not just in terms of what he expects from man, but what he intends for man. He intends to bless us. He designed all of creation with that in mind that we might be blessed. That all of creation... When it, in Genesis 1, when it says that he looked at it and it was good, that Hebrew word for good meant that it was good for someone. It was good for us. It was good for his ultimate purpose, which was to put man on the earth. And so God's intention all along has been to bless us. Uh, that we are a product of the ultimate product, really, of his creative work. That he has granted us his image, that he has placed us in an environment whereby we could enjoy it and yet glorify and fellowship with him. And so when we come to Psalms and we said blessed, um, we recognize that this is the desire of God. And that the ones who interrupted that desire is not God, but man. We broke that purposes of God, that desire of God to bless mankind. We rebelled and forced God's hand, if you will, from blessing to cursing. That because of our sin and rebellion, because of mankind's sin and rebellion, we were cast out of a place of blessing that a creation that was made to respond to us and be subdued by us is now working against us. And now it requires toiling, sweat. It requires... Uh, dealing with weeds and, and the earth not bringing forth its capacity to produce food and beauty, for that matter. And so we are cast out, and there was a curse upon the woman, there was a curse upon the serpent, there was a curse upon man. And we went from being in a state of blessedness to being in a state of cursedness. But that really wasn't what God wanted, it's what we earned. God comes upon the scene, it's no mistake that he begins by saying, I would really like you to be blessed again. To return to our original intention, the divine intention of God for mankind is that we be in this condition of blessedness. Even Jesus in Matthew 5, when we think about the Sermon on the Mount, what does he start off with? Blessed is the man. And here's the kind of people that God will bless. 
and we read through the Beatitudes and we recognize every verse starts off blessed, 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 blessed. God's desire is to bless us. That is his will, his intent from creation on. What inhibits his blessing is man's sin and rebellion. This interferes with his purposes. And those who would state that God's purposes was to curse man make God an ogre. It was not his purpose to curse man. It was not his desires, not his will, his intent, or his plan. It has always been that to bless him. And so we come to him as our benevolent one, as the one who is looking out for our interests even when we don't recognize it. Even when we want to curse his name, he, even as the righteous judge, wants to bless us. And so we begin the Psalms really with this encounter of what God wants for us. He wants us to be in this condition of being blessed, but that condition requires something of us, that we cooperate with him, our creator. And it has certain demands, but the demands are going to be stated in two different ways, in the negative, what you're going to avoid, and in the positive of what you're going to embrace. Very simple, a simple strategy that God lays forward for us and that he equips us for and that he provides for us to engage in. And so we begin with this understanding. <coughs> we are called, and God's desire is to be blessed. His word is given to us that we may be restored in this condition of God's original intent. Hence, the New Testament says that we are new creatures new creations in Christ, that the old things have passed away of that rebellion, and now we have some new things in our life to encounter, opportunities to explore and grow into this productive and blessed creature of our God. And so we begin in a series of negative instructions, that is what to avoid, to remind us of what it is that prevented God's blessing in the first place. That the first act of man is not to say, well, what does God want? But what has man done to interfere with God's intent? What is it that we have done that prohibits God because he is holy, 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 from truly blessing us. What is it that mankind did? And we know that it is evil. We conjured evil in our hearts against God and his design. We're still doing that. We're still trying to tinker with God's design in everything, not just in one area, but in every area. We tinker it with it socially, and then now we have, want to destroy the very gifts that he gives us of the family unit of a husband, a wife, being the foundation of a society. We want to uh, destroy that. We want to reinvent it. We want to redefine it. We want to 
if there's anything we can speak evil of, it's against God's design. We want to speak evil of God's design of making us male and female. That is now under attack, isn't it? There are young people actually believe that they can choose what they are. We tinker with God's design even all the way down from a social level all the way down to a genetic level. We are dealing with the ramifications of that being uh, perpetrated against man on an international level in these last few years. That we think we can improve upon God's design. And this is evil. What we are trying to do is thwart God's curse by our own means rather than subject ourselves to God that he might bless us. Rather than humble ourselves before him and seek his face, we are saying, no, we can go our own way and we can nullify your curse. And so we can work smarter instead of harder and thus we don't have to sweat and toil, right? Never mind what it does to our bodies, and then we complain because our bodies are weak, feeble, um, because we don't work anymore. And so we come to this and we find that the way of the world is to be contradictory to the desires of God. On a macro level and all the way to the micro level. And so we are called upon to recognize that this is the injury that has been done. This is what that which inhibits God's, and I'm going to use a weird word, capacity to bless us. He cannot bless that which is unholy. Once we understand that, the rest of verse 1 makes perfect sense, doesn't it? If you want to be blessed, you're going to have to Avoid the evil of the rebellion of this world. And we have many times heard of this process of first you're walking with them, then you're standing still with them, and then you're sitting down with them in this progression of intimacy with the world. And certainly that is laid out here and has merit. This morning I really want to look at what it is that we are engaging with. What is it that we are fellowshipping with? Because really all of these words are fellowship. Who are you walking with? And the term is in the counsel of the ungodly. Hopefully we have a good understanding of what that entails. That they are going to tell us how we can and live our lives. Counsel is um, often put in the category of advice. It's a little more substantial here. And, and let's read a few other passages just to get a feel for this. And we're going to stay in Psalms and Proverbs um, for this. Turn with me over to um, uh, blue glasses. Psalm 26. Let's go to Psalm 26. Because this isn't the only place where we have these kinds of statements. Psalm 26, I'll be reading, begin reading in verse 1. It says, Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity. I have also trusted in the Lord. I shall not slip. Examine me, O Lord, and prove me. Try my mind and my heart. 
For your loving kindness is before my eyes. I have walked in your truth. I have not. This time it's reversed. It's the positive things first and now the negative. I have not sat with idolatrous mortals, nor will I go in with hypocrites. I have hated the assembly of evil doers and will not sit with the wicked. I will wash my hands in innocence. I will go about your altar, O Lord, that I may proclaim with the voice of thanksgiving until all your wondrous works. Lord, I have loved the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Do not gather my soul with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men, in whose hands is a sinister scheme, and whose right hand is full of bribes. But as for me, I will walk in my integrity. Redeem me and be merciful to me. My foot stands at an even place in the congregations. I will bless the Lord. We're obviously going to get to Psalm 26 in about six months or seven months. Um, but here we have a very familiar theme, right? A very familiar theme that says, I'm not going to involve myself. And that term he uses there that is translated schemes, these schemes of the wicked. Understand the intentions of the world. They are rebellious. Their counsel, their schemes, their concepts, their dreams, their uh, purposes are in antithesis to being blessed by God. They are, in fact, rebelling against God. And so we have a divine order given to us. And we think we can improve upon that with genetic engineering. Then we wonder why we have these ramifications. Well, you've gone against God's order in rebellion. There's always a cost there. Turn with me to Proverbs chapter 4. And again, this is in the same line. We'll start in verse 10. Hear my son and receive my sayings, and the years of your life will be many. I have taught you in the way of wisdom. I have led you in the right paths. When you walk, your steps will not be hindered, and when you run, you will not stumble. Take firm hold of instruction. Do not let go. Keep her, for she is your life. Again, we start with the positive rather than the negative in this passage, but we go on. Do not enter the path of the wicked. Do not walk in the way of evil. Avoid it. Do not travel on it. Turn away from it and pass on. For they do not sleep unless they have done evil. And their sleep is taken away unless they make someone fall. For they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. But the path of the just is like the shining sun that shines ever brighter unto the perfect day. The way of the wicked is like darkness. They do not know what makes them stumble. Again, a very familiar passage, very similar passage to what we find in Psalm 1. And the statement is basically, do not participate in their devices, that you're going to stand apart and be separate. Now, when preachers of old used to talk about uh, separation, uh, and, and in fact, that was a term they often used for them, we are separatists, we are separatist Baptists. And that was a very common phrase that has fallen out of vogue now, um, which, is too, which is unfortunate. For God's word calls us to be separate, come out from among them and be separate unto me. But we've often involved that separatism from error and doctrinal separatism. And so we've often said, well, we aren't going to have fellowship with this group and this group who call themselves Christian, but their doctrine is error-filled. 
And so we are separate from them. We saw that in First and Second Peter. We are called to be separate and to identify false teachers and isolate them. So we are called to doctrinal, but not just doctrinal separation. Well, the other way we taught separation is we are going to be separate from immorality, from the moral decay of this world. And we see that, and we see its influence and effects. And certainly that is also in play in the concept of being a separatist, that I'm not going to participate in their immorality. I'm not going to watch it. I'm not going to listen to it. I'm not going to bring it into my life, into my conduct. Um, We are going to be separatists. And the way that was evidenced in many of our churches was church covenants. And we would have covenants, and we would read them regularly, uh, at least in the churches I grew up in. And we would sit there and say, well, we're not going to go to movie theaters, and we're not going to... um, gamble, and we're not, and we just go right through, we have a church covenant that we would read together, that we would covenant together, again, this is not necessarily uh, scriptures, it's simply saying that this is what we see as worldliness, and we're not going to participate in it. And it was our preferences, and it was strongly stated so that we would understand that these things will degrade you morally. And there was value there. And again, we've lost touch with that almost altogether. And both of those are very much a part of being a separatist. But there is something more here than that. It's understanding that the world energy, thought, interests, and resources will all be directed in rebellion against God. They are quintessentially evil in their nature, which means that my engagement with them must be extraordinarily cautious. That any benefits that I might think I receive from them, I must understand, are going to do injury to what God wants for me, which is he wants me to be blessed. And so I need to measure that. Well, am I willing to trade the blessing of God for the convenience of man's devices, man's schemes, man's counsel, man's ways? Um, All these terms that are used here in Psalm 1, Psalm 26, uh, Proverbs 4, and many other places Am I willing to trade God's blessing for men's conveniences? And they're convenient, aren't they? Whether it be technological convenience, moral convenience, social convenience, relational convenience, all of those are convenient because they cater to you and not to God. physical convenience. And then we see a breakdown in society and we come to a point in a, in a social, and this isn't just in a modern society, but in the rise and fall of nations and peoples over all of history. And our founding fathers of our country recognize it and they recognize the centralization 
of authority is fundamentally a problem and it needs to be decentralized that people can follow their conscience before God. And thus, God is the authority. It's no surprising that very quickly America moved away from that. I mean, very quickly. Um, in less than a generation, really, they're already moving away from that by the time they uh, engaged and, and ratified the Constitution. We've already moved away from that and abandoned the Articles of the Confederacy. If you don't know what those are, that's what we started our country under, not the Constitution. And so we see that though, as we move through history and the rise and fall of nations, and we see um, the enslavement of people who willingly do that because of conveniences. As they studied Athens, the great democratic model, we find exactly what's going on now under democratic models of nations. This is that fundamentally they fail. And Athens it did, and it got to the point that everybody knew they could just vote for themselves anything, and they all thought they deserved everything. They, they entered an age of entitlement, and it was their demise. Historians have recognized that for at least 100 years in our study of Athenian democracy. And so we see that the intention here is that we want to return to the blessedness that God intends for us now, we're going to have to take some strong separatist stands. I'm not going to walk that way. I'm not going to be advised by their wicked counsel, by their schemes, because they just dream all the day long of how they can rebel against God, and then they can't sleep at night because they have exercised violence against God's created order or creatures. Violence isn't just hurting people. It's doing injury to God's creation. There's a lot I want to say right there, but I want to be able to preach tonight. <laughs> um, I find it interesting that the ground cried out to the Lord over the spilled blood of Abel. Cried out to God. God heard a cry against Sodom and Gomorrah. God heard the cry of the people of Israel uh, in slavery in Egypt. He heard them cry out and then responded. And again and again, we see God responding to the cry of his people. And what is the cry? The cry is, look what they're doing to your people and to your creation. Lord, stop it. And fundamentally, that's what happens as empires rise into power. They usurp God in people's lives. The idea that a government body can tell the citizens of its nation that you are not allowed to change your religious beliefs, as it has done in Jordan and has done recently in India, is atrocious. This is the highest level of violation, for it violates the one human right that God purposely placed in man. Choose you who you believe, who you will follow. And that usurpation of that is because we walk along with them. We listen to their ideas. We know their ways better than God's ways. We know their counsel. We know their um, paths. We know their ways. We know their 
environments better than we know God's. And then we wonder why God's blessing is so meager. And we blame God for that. Instead of recognizing maybe it's time I stepped away and became a little more interested in what God wants and how his created order was established than listening to politicians, economists, lawyers, doctors, name them all, scientists, name them all. That you take their advice as a higher authority than God's word. Oh, not, not in your declaration of mental assent, but of your living, how you actually live. You actually follow their advice. And that's what the psalm says. No wonder you're missing God's blessing. But instead, your will or your delight, it says in verse 2, should be in the law of the Lord. In his law, he meditates day and night. And then we have a wonderful description in verse 3 of that, what it means to be blessed. And it's so exciting and encouraging. And we all like that. um, But we don't follow the other two verses first. Number one, separate yourself from the world. Not just theologically, not just in terms of morally, but in, in their whole scheming, in their whole philosophy. Separate yourself from the philosophies of this world. Their whole concepts of what things are advantageous and what things aren't. There's no economist in the world that is going to tell you to give 10% of your income away or more, 20%. They're willing for governments to take 20, 30%, but they there's none of them would tell you to do that. It doesn't make sense economically, but it does is something God blesses. Well, if that's true in economy, well, maybe it's true in every area from technology to fashion to entertainment to everything. Maybe if I do the opposite of what the world recommends, maybe I will be in a condition of being blessed by God instead of convenienced by man. And that's really all it is. So that's the negative. Separate yourself. But the positive is stating here your delight. And I want to read this out of the Septuagint. Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Paleo-Hebrew, um, and so it has, states a little bit. I'm going to read the whole psalm and to you. It's going to be very familiar, very similar, but I want to pick up on a couple of things. It says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the troublesome. But his will is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He should be like a tree planted by streams of waters that produces its fruit in its season. And his leaf shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. Not so are the godly, not ungodly, not so. But they are like the dust of the wind drives, like the dust the wind drives from the face of the earth. Therefore the ungodly shall not rise in the judgment, nor sinners of the counsel of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. They translate this word delight, and in the Greek it is the word will. Here is the delight of God. The will of God is to bless you. Okay? If you want to cooperate with that will, you're going to have to change your will. God waits for you to conform your will to his. 
that we do like Jesus called us to do in the model prayer. It says, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And if you think that means your surroundings, you're wrong, it's about right here in the little throne of your life, your will. It's my will to do God's will as if I were in heaven while I'm on earth. That's our model prayer. Jesus exercised that model prayer, Gethsemane, not my will, but yours be done. If there's any way I can avoid this death, let me hear it, the plan, plan B. Is there a plan B, God, that I can avoid this death? No, not my will, but yours be done. And that is the word here that's translated for you in your passage, delight. That, and in the Septuagint, is your will. That your will is, in the, in, is, is placed in the law of the Lord. I want to do what God wants me to do. That is what I delight in. That is what I look forward to. That's what my plan is. I want to put my will there. Well, James tells us that um, your words come from your heart, right? You have a spring inside of you. It either springs sweet water or foul. It says, and in his law, yeah, last half verse 2, he meditates day and night. And again, the word meditates is an interesting Hebrew word. Um, I think in this one it uses the word meditates as well. Um, they maintain that. Uh, meditates. The term really talks about reminding yourself out loud. It's verbal or oral reminders. You see, when we think of the word meditates, we think of, I'm just going to think about it in my mind. And that's really not involved in this word. And by the way, um, Eastern mysticism understands the connection between your mouth and your mind. Transcendental meditation doesn't just involve your mind, emptying your mind. What do they do to empty your mind? What do they have you do to empty your mind? You take your mantra and you start blah, 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 blah. You say whatever sound it is, whatever mantra you use to focus and empty your mind by repeating this mantra over and 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 over again until you reach the state of mental, they call it ecstasy, but mental voidness, basically. And then somehow that's arriving, which is frightening because that's exactly what many Pentecostals encourage new believers to do to get the Holy Spirit, contrary to God's word, doesn't say you ever have to do that. And so the, the transcendental meditationists, they know what it's involved, right? They know that there's a link between your mouth and your mind. James tells you that connection is real. Whatever a man thinks, that's what he says. And there's a relationship there. And so when it says to meditate on the law of the Lord, when? Um, hmm. Day and night. It is to rehearse out loud the truths that you know from God's word. And we don't do that. First of all, we don't have enough scripture memorized to do that. Even though Psalm 119, we know your word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Well, it's not just hidden in your heart. It needs to be on your mouth. Mr. Roberts at the end of the adult Sunday school class this morning read a passage that talked about put it in the front 
You have a frontlet. You have it always. You just immerse yourself in God's law. Right? You have read that whole passage. Put it in front of you. Put it your children. Make sure everyone, you should hear it. You should be reading it. You should be writing it every day, day and night. Does that mean constantly? No, but we should be engaging in it. Can we really respond to the world with God's word? And not just in our mind. There's a, there is a connection between saying it and doing it. There is something that solidifies the commitment when you verbalize it and make it out loud. Instead of just saying it to yourself in silence. And I, I was evaluating my life and saying, well, do I do this? I've been studying this for several, couple months actually. And I realized, you know, I really don't quote scripture out loud very much. But I did notice that I quote one quite frequently out loud to myself. Well, not every day, but many days. <laughs> you want to know what that scripture is, don't you? All right. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your path. That's a scripture passage I quote frequently out loud, not to anybody, but to me. To remind myself not to trust in the ways of men, but to trust in the ways of God. Not to lean on the capacities of Kirk, but on the wisdom of God. Not to trust in those. To acknowledge God as to glorify, to have him be the focus of my life, and let him direct me. I have other verses I know. I know a lot of verses, but I don't say them out loud very frequently. That's the most frequent one I quote to myself. But this whole idea that I'm going to place my will in the law of the Lord, I'm going to remind myself day and night out loud to bring to remembrance God's word, to quote it to myself. And whether we do that in song, and unfortunately too many of our hymns um, are not scripture. There was a time in church history where that was anathema. Um, that was error to not sing just the scriptures. That was the text of every song was a verse for many years in the church. Um, now, then we moved to get away from singing scripture to having uh, poems put to music and sing those. And they were biblical poems. Most of that's why you have Writers and arrangers are separate. And some of your favorite ones were just poems. And sometimes it was decades and decades before they were put to music. Okay? And because the church wasn't willing to do that, now we have anybody, whether they're a theologian or not, writing music for our Christian worship that have no basis theologically for what they're saying often. And so the Bible calls us to rehearse God's word out loud, to remind ourselves what it says, and that reaffirms it in our hearts. Whenever I teach young people about learning, the learning process, 
We communicate to them, read it, write it, say it, hear it. When you quote God's word out loud, whether you, I don't know how you quote, if you see it on a page or whatever, but you are now allowing yourself to hear it, read it, and think it, you are tripling the impact of God's word in your heart, in your life, by just quoting it out loud. If you say, I can't quote out loud, then put it around you and read it out loud. Now you see it, think it, say it, hear it. And I love walking to people's houses. If you walk in my house, you'll see that a lot of our decor has scriptures on it. So I can look up and read it. Right? So I can read it. I should speak it, hear it, think it. That we meditate on the Lord. This is going to be one of the key elements of breaking open the blessings of God in our life and to help us in our commitment to say, I'm not going to follow into the schemes, the plans, the devices of the world. I'm not going to follow their way of thinking. I'm not going to look to them for guidance, which is something God reserves for himself in the Christian's life. That's why the Bible says the Holy Spirit is your guide. But we seek guidance from everyone else except him. And then, of course, the result of this in verse 3 will be like a tree planted by the rivers of waters that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf does not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. We only think of that last phrase because we interject our idea of prosperity into that. But the idea here is an agricultural one, obviously, that we're going to be planted by the channels of water um, that don't dry up. And, of course, we hopefully understand the value of that, that now we can sink roots into that, deeply into that, that we will endure. And it purposely talks about whose leaf shall not wither um, and bring forth fruit in its season. And, again, we can go to Christ's teaching when he talked about the sower and the soils and the seed. Well, who was it that endured and brought forth fruit? The ones who had roots. The roots had to go down and be strengthened. That is the strength of the plant. And so being planted beside a stream is not just a pretty picture and, and pastoral and all those things. It's about what's going on underground that you can't see. Because the nourishment for the plant is coming from below because the river has saturated the soil with water, with nutrients. And when he talks about meditating on his law day and night, he's talking about saturating your mind and your heart, which world can't see, with God's word. Once we saturate those things with God's word, then we can endure. The reason he talks about the leaf not withering is because you're going to have to endure. When we go to Psalm 26, um, we can take that time, we can find that he talks about that don't let me fall under the sway or the uh, effect of the evil people around me. I don't want to wither in my walk with God. This is a very powerful term. We're not talking about a single event. We're talking about 
a gradual deterioration. Do not wither. I don't want to wither for God. I don't want something just, and the fact is, is that we live in a dry climate. We understand what withering means. That it's a hot sun, it's a dry air, it just extracts things out of you. It takes the moisture right out of the plant. And so we understand what it needs. We need to water it more. We need to protect it from the sun. We need to uh, mist it so that it has some relief from the heat. And we do all these things. But fundamentally, if you are saturated below soil, none of those things above ground need happen. Why do our cotton wards do so good here? It's because of how extensive their roots are. They go on and on forever. They find that water source and they just latch to it. Oh, that we would have that saturation in our heart of God's word that we don't wither. How am I going to endure? And we saw that in 2 Peter. I want to endure. Well, God wants you to endure too. The only reason you would wither is because you are not, you are exposed to these elements that are extracting things from you. They are sapping your spiritual vitality. The only way you can endure that is if you are well-rooted into the truth and you saturate things that you do have control over with God's word. If I saturate my mind with God's word, if I saturate my heart with God's word, the world still will be evil. (laughs) It'll still take its toll on me, but I won't wither. I won't curl up. I won't dry up. None of that will happen. So we have two plants in the identical environment. One withers and and dies, and the other one flourishes because not because of what's above ground, because of what's below ground. And so it's this whole idea, are you planted in the truth? Do we know that that source, that channel of water is there? And not only are we not going to wither, but we're also going to bring forth our fruit. In time, in its season, we will bring forth fruitfulness. There should be a fruitfulness Many preachers have connected this fruitfulness to the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians, and certainly that is appropriate. I don't want to diminish that at all. Um, fruitfulness, I think, it really focus in on ministry, um, and that is not to be diminished at all. There should be a fruitfulness of ministry in your life. Uh, that's why God gifts you, and it is the overflow of having well-rooted Christian life. I know God's word is true. I know God's word, period. I rehearse God's word for my own benefit and for the benefit of those around me. I keep it before me that I might endure, but also that I might minister. That is, with the overflow of this, I can now bring forth a fruitfulness to God. Not only in my own life and spirit, certainly that should be there and the fruit of the Spirit should be there, but in ministry I should be taking on the concerns and needs and, uh, that God has for the lost, for my fellow believers, for his people. 
we should bring forth fruit. But ultimately, there is a third fruit that we also need to see, and that is the fruit of righteousness. If there is no righteous fruit, there is something wrong in the process. Either you are, have your roots into something that is not the pure milk of the word, you are not rooted in the truth of God's word, you're rooted in the counsel of the ungodly, and at the end of the, this, it's going to say that that's, the end of that is, is to die. The end of taking the advice of the world to drive the philosophies of how you live is death. That is where it will always conclude. It will always bring misery. It will always bring violence. It will always bring death. Always. That's where it will always lead. The fruit that we want to see is righteousness. That I'm not going to follow the schemes of the world that are in rebellion to God. I'm going to follow the principles of God in his word that will lead to blessedness. And there should be a fruitfulness. There should be righteousness, um, not just occasionally in my life, but as the rule of my life. And that's why we get to verse 6, and it says, the Lord knows the way of the righteous. This is the fruitfulness that we should be looking for. Yes, the fruit of the Spirit should be there. The fruitfulness of ministry should be there. But the fruitfulness of righteousness is what the psalmist is primarily concerned with. That you are being contrasted with the evil of this world, of those in rebellion to God, which has prevented them from being blessed by our benevolent creator. And so this is the promise. If we root ourselves and saturate our minds and hearts with the scriptures, and we make sure we employ our mouths to speak scripture often, to ourselves and to one another, to read it out loud for our own benefit and to one another. There is benefit. There is value. When I'm writing, one of the things I do after I've written a paragraph or something is I'll go back and I'll read it out loud just to see if it sounds all right. Does it sound well? And you can't believe the impact of that. When we go into God's Word, um, I love that you read God's Word. I would challenge you that there is added benefit to reading it out loud. When I teach children to sing, or to sing, to read, what do we make them do? Take their little finger, point to the word they're reading, sound it out, say it, and move on. We want to make them say the words, not just read the words. And that doesn't change even later in life. One of the benefits of being a parent and then a grandparent is you get to read to children out loud. I'm pretty sure I could tell you the whole story of the gingerbread man. I have read it out loud hundreds of times to my children and then my grandchildren. Hundreds of times. I can tell you where each word is on the pages of the book we have. It's been the same book all these decades. (laughs) Are we that efficient with God's word? Reading it out loud. Saturating our minds and hearts so that I can produce the fruit of righteousness in my life. That I'm so sensitive to evil that I'm repulsed by it rather than than entertaining the ideas of it. 
that as I'm walking along and I'm encountering the world, that I recognize it's evil immediately. And I go, well, maybe those are some good ideas. Maybe those are things worth thinking about. Well, no, they're in direct contradiction to God's word. That as I stand around, that's a higher level of fellowship, we think, but not necessarily. I love the, the idea of Jesus walking on the road to Emmaus and having a conversation that convicted those guys all the way there. And then when they get there, he leaves, and they go, ah. And then they had to go back to Jerusalem. So yes, walking can have a lot of intimacy. Standing can have a lot of intimacy. And that's not necessarily a positional thing, It's because we're going to see that with the ungodly. It is an authority issue that we're allowing, that, that we're in their presence. That I'm now one of their congregation is literally the idea. I am among, I'm in their standing. I'm standing with them. Are we standing like that with the lost? And then the idea of sitting with them. And again, the idea here is that we have taken residency there. Um, But even in my sitting in society physically, if I don't think of these words socially, um, that I recognize immediately the world. One of the greatest tragedies in our Christian lives is that we sit with the scornful. And we invite them into our homes and we sit with them. They come in the means of a box or a phone, but we sit with them. We sit in their presence and we invite them in and let them curse our God and fill our living rooms with immorality and error and call it entertainment and wonder why we are not blessed of God. And so we are called to be different, to be separate. Not only because of the blessings and the evidence of that, of endurance, of fruitfulness, you know, prosperity in terms of whatever you do. And by the way, once you saturate your mind and heart with God's word, what you do is going to change because you're going to be righteous now. Once you have the fruit of righteousness in your life, your behavior changes. You pursue different things. And other things just are disinterested and fade away. But now let's look at the alternative. If we do not pursue this, we find that the ungodly are not like this at all. They are temporal, that is that they, their way does not last, does not endure. They are simply blown away. They are removed like dust in the wind and they are blown away. That they are transient. There's nothing there that will last and last and last. And so they pursue these things. They find out, well, that didn't work. They pursue something else. Well, that doesn't work. And they pursue something else. That doesn't work. And we're not talking about months or weeks or even years. We're talking generations. If you've studied other religions, you'll find that this generational pattern, the most obvious in Buddhism, 
Buddha, the original Buddhist, was a skinny Buddha. What does that mean? It meant that he believed that if you're going to reach this highest spiritual state, you've got to deprive your body of pretty much everything. <laughs> and in that deprivation and that discipline of that, you will reach this spiritual state. His disciples, having watched him and participated with him in that deprivation, once he died, saw the emptiness that was in his life at the end of that and introduced the fat Buddha, the very next generation. The Buddha you know. You know, sitting there, uh, legs crossed, you know that Buddha statue? That's the one we know. And they went in entirely the other direction. Well, instead of depriving yourself, you should just immerse yourself in pleasure and eating and drinking. And, and now we have the fat Buddha. And that was empty. And the next generation, well, we just keep flip-flopping back and forth because there isn't any truth to the world's ways that endures. Not just for your life, well, this worked for me during my life, well, but at the end, you're, you know, I, I see people pursuing things and then they're miserable at the end of their life and then they pursue something else. I remember one very rich person in this country publicly chastising another very rich person in this country because they weren't philanthropic. Thropic? Philanthropic. And, and the person says, well, I haven't made all of my fortune yet. But then after making his fortune, more of a fortune, really, he now pursues something else, and that something else is even more wicked than pursuing his fortune. And so we find that there is dissatisfaction because there's nothing that lasts. It doesn't endure. You, Solomon describes this in the book of Ecclesiastes, doesn't he? What's its value at the end? The wicked have no value at the end of their life. They only have vanity. And so it says in verse 5, they shall not stand in the judgment. And again, we find something very similar to what we saw in verse 1. Um, in the Septuagint, it says they shall not rise in the judgment. And the idea, again, with standing is a, is a presence uh, that you have um, a rights in. You have a, a present right to be there. Um, you are one of their number. And in the judgment, these people won't be able to stand. They have no standing there. They cannot rise to that occasion at the judgment. Rather, they are going to be on their knees before God and they have no rights in front of him because he is the righteous judge and they have nothing but evil in their life is the concept here. And so they cannot rise up. They cannot participate. They cannot belong within the community of righteousness because they are guilty. Nor will the sinners in the congregation of the righteous. And again, the word congregation is actually the same word used earlier, which is counsel. Nor do sinners in the counsel of the righteous. Now we have a flip situation. 
here we stand before God as his bride, dressed in the righteousness of Christ, clothed in white apparel, standing with him, the King of kings and Lord of lords, and he is our brother. We are joint heirs of his kingdom. We are the inheritors. We are the adopted sons of God, and we stand there, and they now the wicked cannot hear our counsel. They cannot hear it. They have no part in us. They cannot be advised because it's too late. The time for them to respond was on earth. But because we were the compromisers, they had nothing often to respond to because we didn't give counsel to the world. We take counsel from the world. And so the sinners in the day of judgment will not stand. They will not have a presence in the counsel of the righteous or the congregation of the righteous. And then, worst of all, the way of the ungodly shall perish. We've talked about not walking in the counsel of the ungodly, not, not standing in their way, and now we find out that the conclusion of this way that is so, that we are so enamored with investigating is death. And he makes it very clear that that is their conclusion. Their conclusion is temporarity. They have no endurance. It is evil. They have no place among the righteous. They won't even take advice or or direction from the righteous people because they don't want to do right. And their way is the way to death. And Jesus Christ, again, reiterates the same principle. Broad is the way that leads to destruction. Narrow is the way that leads to life, and few there be that find it. How do I find that way? Well, you're not going to find it in the medical journals of our country. You're not going to find it in the scientific journals of our country. You're not going to find it in the in any journalism in our country, from what I can tell. (laughs) In your union papers, you're not going to find it. In your schools, you're not going to find it. We've extracted that from our schools. We're not going to find it. And so the way of the righteous is the mechanism by which we have blessedness, not just in today, but in eternity. Because this wonderful thing is that the Lord knows the way of the righteous. Does God know your way? Um, This is a statement of intimacy, not of, of information. This word know is not just does God know about the way of the righteous, but does God really know the way of the righteous? Does God recognize the way you live? Would God recognize as something he can bless? And it goes back and ties us back into the first word of this psalm. Can God bless you? He knows the way of the righteous. Does he recognize your path as that path? Are they recognizable? Is there a level of intimacy there that, we can share with God and have an expectation 
that we could pray the prayers that David prayed when he says, Lord, let not my enemies get the upper hand on me, he says in a variety of ways, because I love your law. Because I walk in this way. Because I can't wait to get to your house and worship you. I can't wait to be taught your word. And so now, based upon my way, and we saw that a lot in Psalm 26. I was going to spend a lot more time there than I did. I'm still using up all my time. And um, now, because of you know the way that I've lived, you know the way of the righteous, now, Lord, I am asking for your favor. I am asking for your grace, for your mercy, and in essence, I'm asking for your blessedness. Can you bless me? Not only for my own sake, but for the sake of your people and for the sake of your own name. For you have made these promises to us. So a great introduction to the Psalms. To begin a walk, and I really, this isn't what the purpose in terms of uh, the value in the end time, in days especially, why the Psalms should be precious. There are perhaps no one portion of Scripture more quoted in the New Testament than the book of Psalms. It is quoted extraordinarily frequently. We have it as some very precious things to encourage us to stand and to endure and to trust in the Lord and what's involved. We have opportunities to cry out to God and that should be our regular experience. But the premise of all of that is Psalm 1. Don't claim all the promises of the Psalms if you aren't engaged in this activity of Psalm 1. We're going to have some very precious times in the Psalms, but again, it is predicated, it is based upon, is this who I am? Does God recognize my way? as the way of righteousness? Do I have an intimate relationship? Am I among the blessed? Or am I pursuing this world and taking their advice rather than God's advice? Their ways rather than God's ways because it will lead you to the end that they have. Wide is the road that leads to destruction. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you again for your word. And thank you for its power and its instruction and its promises. And Lord, help us to implement these principles in our lives consistently. That while the world wants to utter gibberish to empty their minds, that we might fill our minds with your word by uttering it day and night. Lord, help us as a church body to saturate our fellowship and our experience by spending time in your word that we might be rooted in it and never wither and be bearing fruit season after season to your glory, honor, and praise. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.